It's awesome. I love the Easter season, Easter tide, and I'm actually just really looking forward to picking up where we left off last week on Easter Sunday. If you weren't around and for some reason you didn't get to read the Easter story, what happened was, and what we looked at last week, was that Mary and Peter and John, they came running to the tomb. They found the tomb empty. Seeing Jesus' grave cloths lying like right where his body would have been as if he evaporated right out of them. And then later on in the story, Mary gets a visit with the risen Jesus. He's alive, he's, he's well, and he tells her something. He tells her to go tell my disciples that I'm alive. And that now my father, the God that I call father, guess what? You get to call him father too because of what I've done. It's this whole new relationship breaking onto the scene of history. And she does this. She goes and tells the disciples. And that's exactly where we pick up the story today. And I want you to think about something. Mary's been visited by the resurrected Jesus. She goes and tells the disciples, I've seen Jesus. I've touched him. In fact, he said, don't cling on to me. He's telling me all this new reality about our relationship with the Father. And what do you think the disciples did? Did they rush out into the streets and rejoice? And did they, did they start churches? How did they contain themselves? Let's find out what actually happened. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read the Gospel of John. And I promise we're going to bring that dry bones scripture. It'll, it'll, it'll come back. You're like, what was the dry bones thing about? We'll, we'll get there. But I'm going to read the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that's the same Easter day. Okay, so we're a week later, but in the story world, we're still on Easter. It's the evening now. And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom Lachem. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. Father, this is an incredible, incredible word. And I pray that you would give us wisdom to hear what you're saying in it. And to live it and to thrive as your people. Be seated. Mary goes to the tomb when? On the first day of the week. John is really clear about this. It's not the third day after Jesus was raised from the dead. It is. But John tells us it's the first day of the week. He tells us it's the first day of the week because it's the first day of something new. A new reality breaking into the history of the world. And again, we start this story with the preface. It is the first day of the week. It's actually evening now. Mary has seen Jesus. Now the disciples have seen Jesus. And now they're behind locked doors in a house. 
how are they going to escape the same authorities that had killed their master Jesus? I wonder what they're thinking. What purpose do we have now that Jesus isn't with us? So they hunker down. They go in behind locked doors. They're not exactly the leaders of the early church that we think about. Courageous people that we see in the book of Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit and doing crazy things like preaching about Jesus at the temple and getting arrested and beaten and stoned and some of them killed. These don't seem like the same guys that we read about just, uh, just a few weeks and months later in the story world. They don't seem capable of the founders of the church that invented things like hospitals and the first universities, the first musical notation. They don't seem like guys who started a movement that made advances in philosophy and the fine arts, that abolished slavery, that championed the cause of the, the marginalized over history. They don't seem like those types of guys. So what would cause these cowering disciples to become courageous leaders of the early church? How is it that you and I even exist as a church today? How did we hear about this faith? How did it perpetuate when these are our founding fathers cowering in a room behind locked doors? Well, I think that this text gives us three main reasons. And the first main reason that these guys were transformed is because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrected Jesus. Just when John tells us the disciples were hiding from the fear of men, Jesus shows up in a locked house. Two quick observations. First of all, we learn that this resurrected Jesus can do crazy things like evaporate through grave, grave cloths, right? Like Obi-Wan Kenobi. We talked about that last week. Vader cuts the head off, Obi-Wan just disappears. That's not normal. Crazy stuff like Jesus can just show up in a locked house, walk through the wall, or teleport. He can disguise himself sometimes, and sometimes at, at will make himself recognizable. He's like some kind of superhero. And when Jesus shows up at this locked house, he says, Shalom Lachem, which is... The plural form of what we were doing before. Shalom Rakhem. Peace be with you. Now, this was a common greeting. It was just a common greeting. It's like when somebody sneezes and you say, God bless you. I don't know how many times I say that with my sneezing kids all the time. They get sick all the time, right? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Do you realize I'm saying God, the creator of the universe... Bless you. I mean, there's, there's actually power behind those words. They mean a lot, but I just let them roll off my tongue. Now that's what's going on here. The common Jewish greeting was, Shalom Lechem, when you come into a room of lots of people. Shalom Lechem. Do you know what this means? Peace of God be with you. Shalom. And I think John is trying to tell us that Jesus is doing more than just giving this common greeting, like just saying, bless you. As it rolls off the tongue. In fact, he has it. He says it twice in this one little section we're looking at. I think what Jesus is doing, on the one hand, is fulfilling a promise. In John chapter fourteen twenty-seven, Jesus said, "My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled." 
Don't be fearful. So here they are cowering in fear. Jesus made this promise about peace and don't be fearful. He comes into that house where they're cowering in fear and says, Peace be with you. Shalom lechem. Now this is a absolutely significant statement. We translate shalom as peace. Don't we? In your Bible it probably says peace be with you. Now, peace in our culture, I think, is kind of an anemic word. To me, and maybe this is just me, but I think in general in our culture when we hear the word peace, we think stillness, lack of violence, calm, meditation, something like that. But in, in Hebrew... Shalom is an active word. It, it doesn't just mean lack of violence or lack of activity. It actually means the totality of God's justice and love and wholeness. It's actually a positive word. Not just lack of activity, but everything good in God's world. That's, that's the God's shalom. God's shalom is the same as when Jesus talks about God's kingdom. It's a, it's a realm of being where what God wants done is done. That's God's kingdom. That's God's shalom. Because God's will is always good, shalom is the best kind of blessing you could have. Peace be with you. Now... By walking through walls like Jesus did, his disciples may have been tempted to think, this guy's a ghost or some kind of phantom or some kind of spirit. And that's immediately when he does something important. He shows them the scars. His wrists and his hands. And he shows them the scars from his side. Later on, he's going to eat with them. He's going to show them that he's very physical. We've already seen that Mary has held on to him. We saw that last week. And this is our second observation about this appearance with Jesus. He's very, very physical. God became incarnate. It's a Latin word that means in meat. Carne. I had carne asada burrito the other day. Carne steak, right? So, Jesus became meaty, fleshy, human being, real stuff. And when Jesus died, he died as a person in the flesh. And when he was resurrected, he was resurrected in a body. In a body. That's what resurrection means. So you and I, through faith in Christ, one day will be resurrected in real stuff. Real bodies. So we're not going to be spirits that fly around to some faraway land or you know, playing harps on a cloud or being in the retirement home in the sky where we play Scrabble all day or whatever game. I, I, you, I'm sure you can play Scrabble. Marcia, it'll, it'll be okay. You'll still be really good in heaven. Probably better. But when the resurrection comes on the last day, we'll be remade into incorruptible physical bodies that experience shalom life, a life of vibrancy and health. And that's good news. That's awesome news. It's bad enough when we suffer illnesses or cold, but all of us know people who have physical ailments, who have been irreparably injured, maybe those with special needs, those things will be done away with. This is a great hope. This is the great hope of our faith. The resurrection. This is what Paul is talking about all the time in the epistles. Grace, why? Resurrection, good stuff. 
is good news, but it's also costly news. See, there's a reason Jesus could come into the house and pronounce God's shalom over everyone. The reason was his scars. You remember I said shalom is an active word, right? The totality of God's love and justice and goodness. Well, it also is an active word because it cost God everything. The reality is, the reality is, every single person on the face of the earth falls short of the glory of God. You and me are made in God's image. I don't act like I'm made in God's image very often. This is where the crucifixion and resurrection are so central to our faith. Here's the premise. Humans spurn God's love. Turn around, ignore it. In fact, Sophia was playing this game with me the other day. She uh, had just finished her swim lessons. Remember, Emily? She had the certificate of graduation or whatever. And, I, oh, honey, I want to see, see your certificate. I'm so proud of her. I don't want to show you. I want to show Mommy. You know what I'm saying? Oh, oh, cut me a little deeper. So I just pretend I don't want to see it. I could be a better four-year-old than she can. But this spurning of God's love hurts him to his deepest, deepest core. In the prophets, God often uses language of marriage. And he says that we're like his bride, and he's the husband. And when we sin against God, you know what it's like? It's like adultery. Imagine that pain. And when we sin, it's like committing adultery in front of God over and over again. Dr. John Stackhouse says, To put it in contemporary language, sin, sin dumps God and sleeps with the enemy. What God has done through the ages with such abuse, and what God does supremely with Jesus on the cross, was what all of us do when we forgive. Listen, God absorbs the pain. God absorbs the pain. God bears the shame. God swallows the anger and opens up His divine arms to us again and again and think prodigal son again. Anyone who asks, why doesn't God just forgive? Why does anyone have to suffer, Jesus or anyone else? Anyone who asks that question has never forgiven a serious offense. Forgiveness costs the forgiver. End quote. Forgiveness costs the forgiver. Now, all of our words, even in Scripture, about what happens on the cross are metaphorical. They're approximate. They're God accommodating to our limited understanding. And one of those metaphors that we have is... It's kind of a Lockhart scenario. So it goes something like this. We've sinned against God, and the punishment for that sin is capital. It's a capital offense. So we deserve to die for that. And in this scenario, only a human being can pay for what humans have done. So God becomes a human being. And he comes to the court. And he stands in the docket. And he stands where we should be. And he takes it. 
He absorbs the pain and the ridicule. This is one of many metaphors for what happens on the cross. It's oftentimes known as substitutionary atonement, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus stood in where we deserved it. But if we stop with that one metaphor of substitutionary atonement, we haven't quite gone far enough. There's another important metaphor. It's called Christ as victor. Jesus died for us. Yes, he, he put himself in the place that we deserve. He took care of our sin issue, but he did more than that. He rose from the dead in a resurrected body and he defeated evil and death itself. So he's victorious over death, not by beating up the devil. I mean, that's if I had the scenario, oh, that's how I would do it. <laughs> I'd want to see a great battle. He absorbs the pain. Jesus, as victor, takes on the devil's best shots. And I want you to think about Holy Week. Think about the pain of betrayal. Betrayed by the kiss of a friend. Beaten, mocked, whipped, scourged. Falsely accused, falsely convicted, nailed to a cross then separated from his father then dead this is the best the best the devil can do and what happened he rises from the dead three days later by the way this is where the Christian doctrine of the Trinity we're getting real theological today aren't we it's important I don't do this all the time this is where the Trinity is so important. Father, Son, Spirit, three persons, one usia, one substance, the one and the same. And here's why this is important, because the minute you and I think, what an evil being God the Father must be to put His Son through that. The minute we begin to go down that road, we have to remember that God the Father became flesh and dwelt among us. He gave Himself on the cross. There is nothing that the Son experienced that the Father did not also experience. All of this changing the word, world, salvation language is wrapped up in one statement. Shalom Lachem. Peace be with you. Jesus can say this from an authentic position because He made it happen. He's actually brought real peace. By showing His hands inside, He's not only showing that He's alive, He's showing them what shalom costs. So what would cause these cowering disciples who are behind locked doors to become the courageous leaders of the early church? How is it that Lettered Streets Covenant Church and all the other churches in the world exist today? <clears throat> because they encountered the resurrected Jesus. They encountered the resurrected Jesus. Here's a second reason. A second reason I think that the disciples turned around and actually started living. Because I think they inherited something worth living for. Now, I'm going to go on a tangent. I'm just, this is a disclaimer. So if you don't watch Lost, it's okay. You just 
check the scores on your iPhone or something. But all you lost fans, remember when Richard Halpert thinks that Jacob is dead? Huh? What does he want to do? He wants to die. He thinks he's purposeless. His disciples, right? When Jesus is dead, they've, they've given up everything for three years to follow him. They think he's dead. What do they want to do? What do we have left? We've given up our family. We've given up our, our careers, our money, any, 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 kind of, uh, any kind of honor we once had. We've been following a homeless guy thinking he's the Messiah. Now he's dead. So Jesus comes back and he gives them the mission of the master. He gives them the mission of the master. See, it's not enough that they know Jesus is alive, that he's resurrected. They are now charged with the same mission that Jesus had. All through John, we've been learning that Jesus is sent from the Father. As the Father sent me, Jesus says, I'm now sending you. Listen to their charge. Jesus said, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. (laughs) Are you serious? What a responsibility. So what does this mean? That you and I, now because we know this and we're disciples, we get to just go around picking and choosing. All right, Jeannie, you're in. Sorry, Trevor. (laughs) I really wanted that dirt bike in your garage. And... We didn't work that out, so... No, that's not what this is about at all. We're not, we're not able to just go pick and choose. Your sins are forgiven, your sins are not. In fact, there's something very important with the verbs here. They're in what's called the divine passive. And all that, let me just get to the nitty-gritty with that. Notice how it says in the passive, their sins have been forgiven. Their sins have been retained. It has nothing to do with you or I. If you're an English teacher, you're probably thinking, that's really bad grammar. You would never write an essay in the passive voice like that. Bad grammar, but great theology. Great theology. God is the only one who can forgive a sin against God. That'd be like you know somebody deeply hurting me and you saying, well, I'm going to forgive the person that did that to you. That's nice of you, but you can't do that. It has to come from me, right? Only God can forgive a sin against God. But what we are charged with is announcing this shalom of God in Jesus Christ. We announce that there's forgiveness available. This is really good news. And that life everlasting is available through faith in Christ. We are to be witnesses of this good news in word and deed. Witnesses that God grants forgiveness. So, on the other hand, if people refuse the message, then their sins have been retained. There's nothing like you can do about it. You can't make someone be forgiven by God, and you can't make them not be forgiven by God. It's a gift. It's out there. And we get the great opportunity of sharing the good news with people. This is an awesome passage I want to share from 2 Corinthians 5, from the Apostle Paul. It's about our role as reconcilers. Hang with me. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one, Jesus, died for everybody. Therefore, all have died. 
He died for us so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, therefore, from now on, we we recognize that no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Here's, Here's the punch. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. A new creature, a new creation. The old things, they passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely this, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed us, he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. His representatives here, ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making some kind of an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The disciples found a new purpose. And it's been spreading on to their disciples and to to us. And that's why Peter picks up on this idea. Remember, he says that the church is the priesthood of believers. What do priests do? They reconcile people to God. They stand in the gap. That's not just for people with collars or with master's degrees in divinity or something like that. This is the work of the church. You're a priest. I am a priest. Called to be reconcilers. Called to share the good news. That God will remake all this, renew us, forgive us. It's great news. It's worth living for. And the disciples not only encountered the risen Lord, they were given the most honorable task of reconciling the world through God. Now, there's a third reason, and this is the most important reason, I, I think. The disciples finally got out of their locked house because they met the risen Jesus. And because they had something worth living for, this incredible task, but none of it would go anywhere. They couldn't believe in Jesus if it weren't for this third thing. And they definitely couldn't succeed in their task as being reconcilers if it weren't for this third thing. The third thing is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Before Jesus gave his commission to forgive and to reconcile, he breathed on them. This word breath in Hebrew and Greek is the same word for spirit. For spirit. That's why we read in Ezekiel 37 that there's this valley of dry bones. This was going to be an army that God was going to raise up. And he tells the prophet Ezekiel, he commissions him to breathe on them. The spirit goes out and causes new sinews, new tendons, that flesh comes on these bones. He makes this army alive. That's exactly what's going on here on this resurrection day. That's exactly what continues to go on. The kind of army that God is building through this breath, through the spirit, is not one with swords.
The shalom is not going to be accomplished through peacekeepers with Bradley fighting vehicles and guns, right? Like UN peacekeepers armed to the teeth. It's kind of a strange picture there. It's going to happen through reconciliation. That's the picture here. When we put our faith in Christ, He breathes His Holy Spirit into us, giving us a new quality of life, a new kind of life. It's the Spirit who convicts people of sin, not you and me. It's the Spirit of God who gives us opportunity to share with people about the good news. It's not us standing and yelling on street corners with graphic signs, unless the Spirit were to call you to that. And it's also the Spirit who calls us to costly living. To costly living. If we're going to be reconcilers, we can't wait for people to come groveling to us saying, I'm really sorry, would you forgive me? It's going to cost us. Because reconcilers are forgivers. Reconcilers stick their necks in places that are dangerous. Reconcilers go sometimes where people aren't necessarily looking or wanting you to be. We forgive. We absorb the pain. It hurts. It costs. It's just like Jesus. That's why we need the Spirit so bad. Can you imagine doing that in your flesh by yourself? It wouldn't last very long. We're not sent to arrogantly proclaim judgment on people. We're not sent to arrogantly proclaim forgiveness over people. That's not our task. Our job is to witness to the truth. Forgiveness is, is available. Shalom is available. The disciples went from cowering men, hiding behind locked doors, to courageous, boldly, not perfect by any stretch, bold and courageous about sums it up, leaders of the early church. Because they encountered the risen Jesus. They received a mission worth living and sometimes dying for. And they received the Holy Spirit. And I've been wrestling with this. So what about me and what about us? What are my locked doors that I'm hiding behind? Why am I not a more engaged reconciler? All right? I believe Jesus is risen from the dead. I've encountered him. I haven't put my finger in the holes. We'll talk about that next week. I've encountered him over and over again. Seen evidence of him in my life. So I've got that checked off. I believe with my whole being in his mission. It's why I wake up. It's why I'm here. I think it's the best mission in the entire world. I think we have the best news in the entire world. The kingdom of God is at hand. Is it fear of people? Is it trying to do the work without the Spirit? Is it finding it hard? to accept our own forgiveness. The living God 
the living God has died for us, defeated death, and now invites us to the most fulfilling job in the world, declaring God's love and salvation for all who might trust in Him. What's holding you back? What's holding me back? Hold that for a minute. In silence, think about that. Why are you behind locked doors? Then bursting forth in glorious day, this is the power of Christ in me. Lord, I pray that those words would take on sinews in our spirits, in our hearts. That we might burst out of our fears, our inadequacies. That you might take away barriers that keep us from accepting your forgiveness. Thank you for the incredible privilege of being called into your work of reconciliation. Give us eyes for it, Lord creativity as each of us goes on to our our own walks of life our own spheres of friends and influence and work and play what is it to be a reconciler Lord teach us and inspire us fill us with your Holy Spirit Thank you that the victory is won. Thank you for bad grammar and great theology. That sins have been forgiven. Help us to announce that good news. And help us not to shy away from proclaiming that sins will be retained without repentance. Father, help us with our task. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.